Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Dude. Heidi ho It's the Album Nerds Podcast. It is I, dude. I've got Andy and Don with me, as always. Gentlemen, how are you doing? What's up, dude? Happy New Year. Still got a little bit of the Christmas spirit there, I see, with your Heidi ho <laughs> That's what you want to call it? I just call it uh, being a good neighbor. <laughs> Howdy ho, neighborino. And Don. Hello, Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, because of the the theme today, I don't know. It'll it'll make sense Uh, later. (laughs) Yes, people will have to pull over in their cars and start laughing once they decipher your joke. So, we're the album nerds. We love talking about albums. And uh, today, we're going to do that. We're also going to answer a question. We're going to spin the wheel of musical destiny at the end of the show to figure out what we'll be talking about next time. But this week, we're talking about live albums. That's what I'm talking about! Well, uh, a live album is simply one that was recorded at a concert or series of concerts before an audience. Wait, wait, wait. So you're saying... (laughs) Oh, man, I totally did this wrong. (laughs) It's Wait, I thought it was albums by the band live you know like throwing copper (laughs) right so would this be the first time ever on the podcast that uh, a live album has been reviewed oh is that no no we did uh discuss hot august night by neil diamond i don't remember the reason i don't remember the theme of the show but uh, that would have been on my list here today for sure wow i let that one slip in (laughs) i'm getting Getting lazy in my old age here. Too soft on you guys. So live albums do have a, a long legacy. I mean, pretty much everything before the invention of magnetic tape uh, had to be recorded live. You know, whether it was actually in front of an audience, who knows? Uh, but yeah, so today each of us is going to present a, a live album. Live albums. There's a lot of them. I just thought I'd go to my favorite band and find their live album, but a lot of times they just feel like greatest hits collections that don't sound as good as the record. Well, what was you guys' experience? (laughs) I mean, that's what I've been saying for like a decade over here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there were just so many to pick from. I probably had like two dozen I listened to. I mentioned a couple that stood out that I hadn't heard before. Strangely, unbelievable to me, I hadn't heard Frampton Comes Alive before, which is probably the most famous live album I'd heard of. Uh, Peter Frampton. It was pretty good. I enjoyed it. Didn't know much about his music before this, but I could see why it's so popular. I also got to listen to Grand Funk Railroad, which is kind of one of those 60s bands I never really got into, but they put on a pretty mean live show too. That was cool. Have you guys heard them before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have a few of their records. I grew okay. up on them, though. My dad had their records. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I kind of did what, what both of you did. So, I kind of started with my favorites. Although, I, I feel like I've been doing a lot of my, you know, favorite artists in, in recent episodes. So, like The Cure Paris, I, I always liked a lot because that one was actually a companion piece to another live album called Show. Show was more like the, the main set list or, you know, typical set list for that tour. And then Paris included a lot of the songs that were deeper cuts that would, would often be encores or you know, kind of mixed in on, on Rare Nights. So that Paris live album is is really good. But yeah, and I also looked at, you know, some of the more known ones, like the Allman Brothers Band at, at Fillmore East, Cheap Trick at, at Budokan. You know, actually, I think like the, those two songs there, the versions you hear on radio of uh, I Want You to Want Me, Surrender, 
Uh, I think those, you, you typically hear the cuts from, from those albums. And actually, just a note about live albums. I used to like them more than I do now. Somebody sort of crushed the, the delusion that, that they were actually live. But, it, you know, it turns mm-hmm. out that a lot of times they're brought back into the studio and they're, um, yeah. you know, they're recutting things and stuff. So retracking stuff yeah. or, yeah, mixing two different shows together, adding a little crowd noise. Yeah. To me, that sort of defeats the purpose. Right. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea is like that live, unfiltered, unedited concert experience. And uh, sometimes you get that a little bit, at least. <laughs> Not always, though. Yeah. So, you know, like there are times like uh one of the albums i wanted to talk about was johnny cash live at Folsom prison and when we did our country albums of the 1960s i wanted to do that album but was forbidden (laughs) by andy but that's that's a situation where that's a really good performance record like that doesn't sound like a greatest hits it sounds like something unique you know it does happen Mm -hmm. things i considered were kiss alive that does have the studio wizardry I thought we've talked about Kiss enough on this show. I do love them. And Pearl Jam Unplugged. I wasn't really sure if Unplugged counted, but that the intention of that was to be a television show, not a live concert experience. So I went with what I went with largely because uh it's got a it's a live album that's sort of unique in terms of its purpose. Mm-hmm. So uh why don't we jump into it? You choo choo choose me? The amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame. Yeah, one thing I noticed on all these live albums you listen to, the announcer really gets the crowd hyped, man. You don't really see that in concerts nowadays like you did back in the day. Like the opening band sometimes will say who's coming right, next. Right, coming next, but that's about it, yeah. I, I feel like that... Uh, announcer there you know he's like a hype man and I, I feel like that maybe got incorporated into hip-hop you know where you had the mc that was hyping up the the dj yeah totally good point man anyway so my selection here is james brown if you couldn't tell talking about his live at the apollo concert album from 1962 she was released in may of 1963 it's his first live album recorded at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York. Let's play a little bit of track nine, Lost Someone. Someone who's greater than a star. Someone money. You know, uh, James is much more of a crooner. He has a a crooner to him. Mm -hmm. I didn't really think I'm more familiar with the 70s and later stuff than the 60s stuff. So very smooth. Me too. Me too. So yeah, this is fairly early in his career. I mean, he was very active in the 50s as well. Um, But yeah, much more of a soul R&B sound here from James than the funk that maybe he is more well known for. I found that pretty interesting. He really sells it, or at least sold me on, on that sound. And I think, uh, you know, having the screaming, adoring <laughs> fans kind of helps, uh, yeah. you know, back up that, that point as you listen to the record. Cause there's, it almost sounds like the Beatles at times here, just like women just losing their minds over, mm-hmm. over his performance. And you have people like, sing it, James. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's James and the Famous Flames, which are kind of his backup singers slash dancers. And they had a pretty well choreographed uh, stage performance that they would go through. And I mean, his dancing is almost as good as his singing, in my opinion. He's kind of the pioneer of a lot of the moves that we would see kind of in later decades in terms of like shimmying and sort of like 
just gyrating around the, the stage there. He was kind of the, the master at it, in my opinion. Well, there'd be no Michael Jackson mm. and a lot of other artists, but totally. Michael Jackson certainly comes to mind, not just the dancing, but in listening to this record, some of James's vocal tools, some of his sounds and his vocal emoticons <laughs> were definitely <laughs> cribbed by Michael Jackson and others. Yeah, totally. I mean, he sings a lot, but he doesn't say a lot of words, I would say. There's just a lot of a lot of sounds, a lot of emotion. Yeah, so this record was paid for James out of pocket. His label, King Records, didn't think it was going to be profitable because they'd already put all these hits on, on singles previously. Um, but yeah, it went on to become a very well-selling record and was inducted into the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. A couple of decades ago, often looked on as one of the, at least the early great live recordings. So yeah, I, I mean, I come to really like this record. Uh, my three words are the Godfather in full force. Definitely that early kind of incarnation of James Brown, but I think it's pretty great. Let's play another track from the album. This is Think. Yeah, I like that song because it's um, it, it's kind of like that. It, it, it's a it kind of hints at I think what the James Brown that that comes later. You know, it's pre funk, if if you will. Get a little little taste of funk. Well, and the the musicians that he surrounds himself with throughout his different iterations are amazing. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was a guitar player in his band at some point. I, mean, I think it was Famous Flames. I'm not sure which period. I think a little later than this, but. Yeah, yeah, and that one was a was a hit for uh, for James Brown, and before that, it had been uh, recorded by the the Five Royales. Uh, the three words I chose to describe the album were quick attack soul. I guess you know it's just partially the length of the album. You know, it's like thirty minutes or, or so. I, I believe that is the full set list for the the show, and I I like it. Like I, I like you, you come on for thirty minutes, you tear up the place, and and then you kind of disappear in the thin air. And it is just it's just this quick attack of 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 soul. It's like did that just happen? Um, and I, I think. If you were there, um, you would probably feel that way. And you know, a lot of live albums fall flat, but I think they do a pretty good job of of capturing the the energy um, of of what I think that that show was was probably like. Yeah, I mean, I think the A side in particular, the first few tracks where he just rips through like all his hits at the time in like really quick succession. I mean, the tracks are like two minutes each. It's almost like a punk punk rock record, you know, at the beginning there. Um, yeah, he just comes at it with so much energy and it's really the energy that kind of, I think, makes it so enticing. Yeah. When you're disappointed that it's over, that's a big deal, right? So like I was yesterday, I was walking through the tundra because we had a blizzard here and I was taking a hike in the woods and I was listening to this album I hope no one saw me. I kept taking like mini dance breaks, you know, I like it, it was. <laughs> Do a little spin in the snowbank. Yeah, I was just like, I was smiling the whole time, like the reactions from the crowd and yeah, I mean, wow, just really impressive. And I did feel like I was there, even though I'm walking through the snow, which is nothing like being in the Apollo Theater. <laughs> <laughs> it, it felt like I was there. Let's hear a little bit from the closing track on the record, Night Train. Should play the Guns N' Roses. We're on the night yeah. train. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> Bottoms up. Miami, Florida. Atlanta, Georgia. Riding up, yeah, 
Oh yeah. I mean, so first of all, the night train, the dan 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 I think about uh, Back to the Future, which pretty much almost everything comes back to that. The uh, <laughs> does come up a lot. The band that the band that the under the under the sea dance me under the sea dance yeah. was playing Night Train. Now that that song has a complicated history. The opening riff was first recorded in 1940 by a small group led by Duke Ellington. Um, but it's a 12-bar blues instrumental standard first then recorded by Jimmy Forrest in 1951. So this version of Night Train, James Brown and his band played, and then they added that whole touring cities that they went to thing, which I think became a pretty standard trope in songwriting and live songs. Mm-hmm. Here we listen to the news, did this song about the different cities, yeah. hard to rock and roll. New and, York, New York. Yes, exactly. Other bands have done similar songs, yeah. not necessarily Night Train itself, but similar, here's all the places we've been. And I had never heard this before. And it, this was the moment when I was like side foot dancing in the snow. So <laughs> yeah, the three words I used to describe this album and kind of driven by that finale perfect live album i mean it just it's everything i would want i felt like i was there the energy was there and it felt like a exciting event it was great yeah become part of history man yeah i'll also just mention the there's a sequel to this album that came out a few years later in 1968 also at the apollo that is more of the funk James Brown sound that you would expect to hear in the seventies. Um, just kind of the beginning of that, that era of music. Also, also very good. I would equate it to alien two versus alien one. That's more of like in your face hits. <laughs> this is a little bit more subtle. I think <laughs> I think this uh, is probably the first time a James Brown recording has been compared in any way to the alien movie franchise. So congratulations, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> two of my favorite things ever. Ain Hoff Alert. Album Nerds Hall of Fame nomination. Right, I'm going to nominate this for the Ain Hoffs. Yeah, I think it's a great representation of his, you know, his early period and maybe among among his best records, period, period. So I say yes, Ain Hoff material. Gentlemen? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I never anticipated putting a, a live album into the into the Hall of Fame, but yeah, I, I think this this definitely deserves it. It might be if somebody asked you to recommend a James Brown album for them. I mean, this this might be the one you would pick. Yeah, I think it's a legit chance it would be. So, yeah. so I, I vote yes. Yeah. I say yes. It brought me great joy, and I will be listening to it many more times. Congratulations, Mr. Brown, and the famous flame. All right, so again, the album is James Brown, Live at the Apollo, 1962. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing concert, and it's short, so definitely worth worth a listen if you haven't heard it. Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Question time. You guys ready to get asked yet another question? If you could attend any concert in the 1960s, what would it be and why? Any concert. I mean, it's probably arguably the best decade to go to a live concert, I would say. I mean, for me, I grew up a Doris fan, and they were kind of at their peak in the late 60s. So I would have loved to have been at one of those like early shows in California as they were kind of 
working things out, you know, on some of those early stages. They're pretty, they put on a great live show too. I listened to some of their stuff for, for this episode as well. And yeah, so dramatic and so just powerful and such a unique sound that they had. So yeah, I probably would go with, uh, you know, probably 67 doors somewhere in California. Plus to be in California in the 60s, that sounds pretty dope to me too. Yeah, lots of dope. <laughs> Indubly. How about you, Don? Well, I would argue that maybe the 70s would be a better decade just because I don't think the the um, PA systems and stuff, the, the audio quality would necessarily be good mm. in, in the 60s. Good um, point. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> <probably> right. <laughs> um, I was actually thinking, and maybe it's because of the record I'm going to talk about next, but I, I think maybe seeing like Dylan in like Greenwich Village or, or something would be kind of cool. Oh, man. You know? Yeah. What a scene. So you could be one of the people that could say, oh, I was into yeah. him before he broke the <laughs> law. <laughs> Maybe see a young right. uh, John Dutchendorf. John Dutchendorf? Who's that? Yeah, do you know who that is? I'd be embarrassed. I can tell in like five seconds. Who is John Dutchendorf? I'll give you a hint. You, you guys did his Christmas album last year. You did? <laughs> <laughs> what did we do last year? I did the, the Grinch and uh, what did you pick? It was John Denver. Oh, Dutchendorf. He was, yeah, he was a folk artist first, you know, and then kind of broke out and it sort of took on a country music vibe. Yeah, for me, I'm going to cheat and say Woodstock. Oh. I'd get to see Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Jimi Hendrix and 10 years after and almost everybody that was anybody in the 60s. Yeah. 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 I mean, I wanted to say the Beatles because they had such a limited run of live performance, but yeah, I, it would have been like the She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah stuff, which I, I do enjoy. But what about that rooftop show, man? You wouldn't want to have been there for that's not a concert. That doesn't count. That's not something I could have got tickets for, sir. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Of course. I wouldn't want to, I would want to be performing in the rooftop Beatles concert. <laughs> Playing a little uh, washboard or something, you know, <laughs> or the, On your the abs. jug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My abs. All right, how about y'all? If you could attend any concert from the 1960s, what would it be and why? Let us know, albumnerds.com slash discord. I am Artie Garfunkel, at least alias Artie Garfunkel, now Arthur Garfunkel. This is Paul Simon on my left, and this is Leaves That Are Green. They actually had leaves on the stage with them? (laughs) Good one. (laughs) Okay, so uh, my uh, live album pick is from Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, This is called Live from New York City, 1967. It was uh, recorded uh, on January 22nd, 1967, although it wasn't actually released until uh, July 2002. Why don't we start with... um, this is actually, this is one of my favorite Simon and Garfunkel songs. It appears on the Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Thyme album. Uh, this is called the, the Dangling Conversation. They call those dingleberries where I come from. superficial <laughs> The borders of our lives. And you read your Emily Dickinson. And I, my Robert Frost. So Simon and Garfunkel were an American folk rock duo uh, consisting of singer-songwriter Paul Simon and singer Art Garfunkel. Uh, They actually met in elementary school. 
in Queens, New York in 1953. They learned to harmonize and began writing songs. As teenagers, uh, in 1957, they actually had um, a, a hit song called Hey Schoolgirl, which was uh, kind of you know like an Everly Brothers sounding uh, record. But they, they reformed like in 1963 when the, the folk um, revitalization was was happening and they signed to, to Columbia Records. So this, uh, this is recorded uh, at the Philharmonic Hall at Lincoln Center in New York City. The three words I, I chose to describe the album were uh, back to basics. Simon Garfunkel's first album was just like a straight folk album, like all acoustic, and it tanked. They kind of went their separate ways, but producer Tom Wilson had remixed the the sound of silence and added the guitar and the drums, and suddenly that was a hit record, and they got back together and started doing things in more of a, a folk rock vein. But this concert is all just them. It's just Simon's guitar and their two voices, so it, it includes a lot of their you know, some of their rock songs, uh, but it's all done in this, you know, more traditional uh, folk style. So was it the first unplugged album? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the thing, one of the things, that song in particular, I love the, how descriptive they are lyrically about what's going on, but then I also feel like a total tool because they're like, we're reading Emily Dickinson. Yeah. And I'm, right. you know, I'm, if I'm picturing it being my scene, I'm reading Stephen King and, and my wife is reading <laughs> Tina Fey's autobiography or something. You know, it's not You read your fancy, mad like magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very much a part of that literary... New York City scene, you know. Okay, well let's uh, let's hear another one. This is one of their uh, bigger hits, uh, "Homeward Bound." Homeward Bound is kind of to me one of those. I love those songs that are like the performers that are worn out and ready to go home and are describing the things they're looking forward to to the the normal life for me that humanizes these superstar guys you know that they they want the same things that everybody else does so i I think that hit me more as a as a young person when i more idolized musicians than i do now now i know they're just some schlub that got lucky (laughs) (laughs) talented (laughs) The, the, the three words i used to describe this album were poetry voices harmony it's all about those voices and i can't believe the two people can so consistently say the same words at the exact same time (laughs) like that's got to be really hard and kind of frustrating because you don't get to showcase yourself too much art garfunkel (laughs) sometimes the little guy takes the spotlight and you're singing along with him and and it's just it's a very impressive just the how much talent is there to be able to do that yeah and actually on some of their records the harmonies are so tight that it actually just kind of sounds like one voice mm-hmm. yeah well there, there is some good storytelling uh on this album why don't we hear them uh intro the song uh, a most peculiar man i saw an article in the london paper about a man who had committed suicide you see four lines in the paper and i thought that's a very Bad way to go out. Bad eulogy. Four lines. It's called The Most Peculiar Man. Yeah, I love those kind of intimate storyteller moments. I mean, it's kind of like 
VH1 before VH1, get a little bit, <laughs> get a little bit of background on, on how this, the song originated or what they were thinking when they wrote it, that kind of stuff. Like this is such an intimate concert. Like I know, I'm sure it takes place in a huge theater, um, but just with the two of them, the way it's produced, the way it sounds, it's almost like you're just in the room with them. So getting some of that background and some of the little, those little mic breaks and little kind of asides that they, they have or little crowd interactions that happen a few times throughout the show. I found those the most endearing and the most interesting because a lot of the arrangements for the songs are, are pretty close to the the album versions that I was familiar with. But yeah, their storytelling and just their vocabularies and just the way they present themselves, I think is, is very, it's excellent. It's, I mean, obviously they're among the best at, in this, this genre, especially, and this is kind of the, the peak of the genre. So it's pretty hard to poo poo this too much. <laughs> so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. My three words were intimate folk stories. That sounds about right. Yeah, the, I mean, I think I mentioned it earlier in the conversation, just the descriptive nature. So yeah, hearing the story of where that comes from is really cool. Yeah, the, the whole thing did feel like an afternoon at a Borders bookstore <laughs> in the, in the <laughs> mid-90s, you know? You're right, nice coffee shop, but just happens to have Simon Garfunkel. <laughs> yeah. And th- this album actually includes the whole set list from that night, except one song. Uh, there's a song called Red Rubber Ball that Paul Simon wrote, which was actually done by a group called The Circles, I, I think. Um, but you can actually get that recording on their box set. Uh, one thing that I, I, I think is really underrated about Paul Simon is just his guitar playing. Um, I mean, I don't yeah. know to what extent he's he's known as a uh, amazing guitarist, but uh, he's great. Um, there is the, the one uh, instrumental track on there, uh, Angie. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. That, you know, it's just uh, just phenomenal. I also find it interesting, you know, songs like I Am a Rock and A Hazy Shade of Winter. You know, those are more, you know, rock songs. And, and I think they do a pretty good job, you know, giving it the, the unplugged treatment. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a real soft spot for, for Simon and Garfunkel. They're kind of like that first older group that I kind of discovered without the influence of my parents. Uh, and then I found out that they kind of uh, appreciated them too. Um, so I had, I had a period... Uh, I think early high school or something where I borrowed the the box set that had all of the all of the albums on it, and so I, I spent a, like three straight months listening to, to Simon and Garfunkel. So I, uh, I, I wearing black turtlenecks. Yep, yep reading my uh, Robert <laughs> Frost. Right <laughs> there, you go. Very nice. But, so I, I don't know. I mean, as a Simon and Garfunkel fan, you know, like I know all, all these songs. I I really enjoy it. I, I wonder if it's as enjoyable for for people who maybe aren't as familiar with their their catalog. Honestly, I thought the the songs I I didn't recognize. I appreciated more in this context as opposed to the the hits that I knew just sounded a little bit off. I guess because like like we were saying, they don't have the big the full band arrangements like I'm used to. So yeah, I, I think they have a great stage presence and obviously they're super talented. So that helps too. Yeah. And there are other live albums from Simon and Garfunkel that do uh, uh, include a, a full backing band. Okay. So that was Simon and Garfunkel live from New York City, 1967. This is friendship. Pure, unadulterated friendship. Oh, yeah. Are you a music fan? Join us on the Album Nerds Discord, albumnerds.com slash discord, to discuss what you like, what you dislike, and help us induct records into the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. Also, you can suggest topics for the Wheel of Musical Destiny. All right, so I'm, uh, I'm picking the MC5. Kick out the jams. From February of 1969, recorded October 30th through 31st, 1968 at the Grand Ballroom in Detroit, Michigan. 
why don't we uh, start off with probably the best known song kick out the jams MC5, also known as the MC5, Motor City 5, uh, American rock band formed in Lincoln Park, Michigan in 1963. It was Fred Sonic Smith, Michael Davis, Dennis Thompson, Rob Tierner on vocals, and Wayne Kramer on guitar. Kick Out the Jams is kind of the most known song because it had Kick Out the Jams motherfucker (laughs) uh, on the album. And it was a huge deal in 1969. This is their debut album. They chose to make a live record as their debut album to capture that feel. So these are all new songs. They had no hits. That's pretty interesting. I mean... That's part of why I picked it. I think it's a very interesting record. It also is known for kicking off the revolution of unfettered rock and and punk because it's got a it's got a punk rock aesthetic to it. The three words I use to describe this raw counterculture rock. I think it's that counterculture part that's most important. The songs themselves aren't necessarily counterculture, but they were tied up with their manager, John Sinclair, who's a well-known founder of the White Panthers uh, organization tied to the Black Panthers at the time. So more of a militaristic revolution thing instead of the peace, love, hippie movement. So this was happening in the Midwest as opposed to one of the coasts, which I also think was interesting because everything is driven by New York and L.A. To further the conversation, why don't we jump to uh, Starship? We built this city. (laughs) (laughs) Different Starship. I do not think that the Motor City 5 would appreciate that particular song. (laughs) Yeah, that track in particular, Starship, kind of floored me the first time I heard it. I'm not super familiar with MC5. Did no kick out the jams. But that song in particular really pushes the boundaries. I mean, even nowadays, that sounds pretty uh, inventive and creative and, and, and groundbreaking. It's just, I mean, it's hard to tie that to punk rock, I guess. Yeah, that's more psychedelic. <laughs> Much more of a psychedelic. Yeah. yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of just noise, like noise rock I could hear like, coming from that. Yeah, kind of velvet undergroundy too, but louder. Mm-hmm. Totally velvet underground, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a product of its time. I think it's the revolution, the reckless abandon, the yeah. sort of screw the establishment, like, but in a angry way, not in a, hey, we're going to change the world together <laughs> yeah. type yeah. of, you know, hippie thing. Yeah, totally. Uh, my three words for the record are blueprint for the future. Because, I mean, there are a lot of, of sounds here that would come to be much more popular in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, you do have elements of blues rock. The psychedelic sound of the 60s is in here as well. You know, none of these songs I don't think are, you know, comparing them to Simon and Garfunkel, which is so composed and beautifully, you know, presented. This is the opposite of that. This is all just super raw and in your face, and there's tons of feedback and just, you could picture, I haven't seen the video of the performance, but I imagine it's a freaking mess and they're all over the stage and things are collapsing and falling apart around them and <laughs> yeah like i don't picture simon and garfunkel me making a single mistake right <laughs> and these guys were hitting clunkers and bad notes and yes it's sad i mean i don't know if they did they say that they actually 
had some flubs on this record, I wouldn't be surprised. I did actually read that, yes. Wayne Kramer said that he hears a lot of mistakes. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really, I mean, that's almost the point, I think. It's to just not really care about being perfect. And it's more about, like he said, just that concert counterculture vibe and just stick it to the man kind of thing. So for that, I think it's great. Well, for the for the for your point about the cult, counterculture and stick it to the man. So MC5, obviously, the, the song Kick Out the Jams had had the f word in it and hudson's was a was a department store in detroit area and they banned the album from the stores so then mc5 took out an ad in the underground magazine saying fuck hudson's kick in the door if the store won't sell you the album on electra hudson's then told electra we're not going to sell any of your albums oh then uh, Electra kicked them off of the label, and then they went and signed with Atlantic. Oh, my <laughs> so, gosh. Wow. I mean, tr- truly, they were living up to the we-do-it-our-way ethos, which punk, which I think is really what punk rock took from this. Walking the walk. It seems like one of those records that maybe is more just important for where it stands in the timeline of, of rock music and not so much the individual songs or the performance itself. But for that, I think it's pretty awesome. All right, so why don't we jump uh, to Motor City is Burning. Yeah, that track stood out to me, I think, because the, the, the blues is, is more obvious in it. And there's, you know, there's some really cool uh, soloing in there, and that's... You know something that kind of differentiates it from from punk. I think you know you don't get a lot of guitar solos in those early days of <laughs> uh, of punk. Um, so there's a you know um, you know unlike the Sex Pistols or whoever, um, you know you, you do have some some good musicianship going on here. Uh, the the three words I, I chose to describe the album were uh, immediate pre punk explosion, and this kind of parallels to to what what I said about the James Brown album. Again, it's thirty minutes. It's like they're on the stage tearing the place down uh, and then they and then they leave so yeah it's just a it's an assault uh, on the on the senses and your eardrums and, and that's what's really cool about it and this is another album where uh, it makes you want to be there and I kind of feel like uh, you know I, I was there watching these guys just just rocking out I've always heard the name MC5 I'm sure at one time I thought it was a, a, a rapper mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but the, this kind of fills in that that punk rock timeline you know before like the New York Dolls and and the Stooges, um, you know, you, so you can kind of see the tr- the transition, you know, from the the rock of the late '60s uh, into that era. Uh, I guess it was the evolution of kind of garage rock. Yeah, uh, this is more garage rock. Yeah, nice. So yeah, there's a lot of good songs on here. Uh, I love the title "Rocket Reducer Number 62" with the Rama Lama Fa Fa Fa. There's just it's it's a fun <laughs> album. So why don't you go check out MC5, kick out the jams and. Uh, Cover the kids' ears for that one moment. <laughs> Live albums. I hope we learned something today, guys. What did you learn? I gotta go to some concerts, man. You know? I haven't been to a show in like over a year. So yeah, definitely need to make that more of a priority. Interesting that we all chose albums from the 1960s, I think. Yeah. I think that says something about the time period, I guess, and maybe our tastes. What do you? Why do you guys think we all gravitated towards the '60s for live music? Yeah, I don't know. Kind of stumped. 
I was looking for something that wasn't just a performance, but was more, something different, something that you don't expect from a live album and being a debut. So it just happened. It could have been 1970. I wasn't looking for the 1960s. I was just looking for something cool to talk about. So I guess the 60s are cool. (laughs) I think maybe live albums just aren't as important now as they once were. Like, I I don't, I mean, I suppose maybe artists are putting out live stuff, but I don't know. It doesn't seem to be in the in the culture because um, I, I mean it was standard. I think for any rock band in the seventies and eighties to uh, come out with a live album at some point. I'm sorry. I mean, we made three good picks, so I, you know, I, I think out of the sea of kind of live albums, you know, we we picked some <laughs> some good ones. Yes, yeah, nice, nice job, us. Yeah, and I, I would like to revisit again it, it again because um, you know there are some some notable uh, omissions. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just that live albums are more varied in quality than I really thought about. They can, uh, that can mean performance, song choices, production, crowd noise. It's, it really is what experience are you looking for? Are you looking to have a memory of a show you actually went to? Or are you looking for a rare track that wasn't on an album or a version of a song that was only played live? So it really depends on your motivation. And I think that's what stuck with me the most is that it's not just a thing. It's its own universe, different reasons, different motivations besides yeah. the studio album. And that's one to grow on. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. All right, boys and girls, children of all ages, gather around for the... First spin of 2023, Wheel of Musical Destiny. Let's see what fate has in store for us. Your musical destiny will bring you into the presence of giants, some might say heroes. Prepare yourselves to bask in the greatness of supergroups. Supergroups. Is that why you put your hands on your hips like that? (laughs) Yep. Super groups. Okay. All that, there was a lot of that going on in the 60s. They weren't called super groups, but. They were called the Yardbirds. Yes. (laughs) Any collection of of artists that were from other bands or uh, performers. So that should be fun. So the individuals should be popular before the group was formed. Not necessarily popular, but established. I feel like everything Clapton was in was a super group. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Also, don't forget, the fate of InXS's album Kick is still up in the air. You can vote yay or nay for its Einhoff induction. Go to albumnerds.com slash discord. Vote thumbs up or thumbs down on our general discussion tab on there. Also go to our website, albumnerds.com and Instagram, instagram.com slash albumnerds. Who's your favorite supergroup? What's your favorite live album? What are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Album Nerds. Also, you can subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you once again for joining us on the Album Nerds podcast. We will check you next time with some supergroups. Thanks for listening, everybody. See ya. The Album Nerds have left the building. I wondered if they were going to get an Elvis reference in. (laughs) 